by some who are trying to get away from the truth in the last few years that fasting does not require you not to drink, only not to eat. And I have even heard three or four years ago that fasting does not require you not to eat or drink. Now I ask you, what pre-tale, or pray tell is fasting in <laughs> if you don't fast on the Day of Atonement? Uh, it, it was a very shallow argument. Anyone who does not is cut off from God. That's very clear in Scripture. Well, let's get in, on into it, and we will suffer whatever affliction we suffer today. Uh, that's just what happens on the Day of Atonement. But is the affliction worth it? This day, I think of all the holy days of God, from Passover through the last great day, is probably the least understood of all the days. The symbolism, I think, as preached in the church, has been the muddiest and the weakest on this particular day. Passover comes around, I think it's very clear to show that Christ died for our sins and that it, that, that is a continuing sacrifice because we are sinners, have been sinners, and still continue to sin, and we need a continual sacrifice. The days of unleavened bread come to show us, among other things, of course, that we're to continue to come out of sin, to put sin out of our lives. Pentecost <clears throat> means that we're the first fruits, and that is the feast of the first fruits. That God is preparing a harvest of people for his kingdom, and that there are several harvests, that being the first one. And the 144,000 comprise the first fruits, as Revelation 14:4 clearly shows. No more, no less, first fruits than 144,000. It says these are the first fruits. Argue with that. So that one's fairly clear. Then we come to Feast of Trumpets, and we see that the trumpet will sound, and the dead will rise in Christ at the last trump. So it was pictures the resurrection of the first fruits, very obviously. That one is inescapable and easy to see. The Feast of Tabernacles comes, and it pictures the millennium. And peace and safety and security, Satan is bound, Christ is ruling, we are kings and priests already, and the millennium is fairly easy to understand. Last great day, we can go through and explain how people lived and died, whether it was babies or people who never knew the truth, and they have their chance at the second resurrection. I think that one has been fairly clear and easy to explain, perhaps some of the timing of, of it uh, we did not quite have right, as explained in How Exclusive is the Church series. But in between there, you have the feast, or the Day of Atonement. I don't guess you call it a feast, it's a holy convocation. We're here to feast on God's Word, but it is not, in that sense, a feast. But we say we're to be at one with God, we're supposed to fast, and we're not supposed to work. But has something in the explanation been missing? 
Is there something that would make it clear why we need to fast at a time when after Peace of Trumpets we already are God? Why fast then? Why, if Christ was sacrificed for us, and that's pictured by the Passover, do we have to have a goat that is killed representing Christ at atonement? Why have it in the spring and again in the fall? Is there some different meaning? Or have we been missing something? Now let's look at the order of the holy days here in the fall. You have the trumpets, or the day of trumpets, and at that time we become incorruptible, eternal, immortal. Then we have the day of atonement, then we have the Feast of Tabernacles, picturing the millennium when we are kings and rulers, we're married to Christ. We have those three in sequence, but it seems there's an event missing. Feast of Trumpets has an event attached, the resurrection. The millennium has an event attached. The millennium is here. People are living in peace, safety, and security. But what event is really tied to the Feast of Trumpets? I mean, to the Day of Atonement. We've not had one, have we? Is there some event that we've tied to that? No. Well, what events are you looking forward to in understanding God's truth today? I am looking forward to, well, hopefully a place of safety to go there, to be accounted worthy to escape a lot of things that are coming on this earth. That's not my ultimate goal, though. That's a side issue. But I'm looking forward to some very specific events personally in the future. The first really major exciting event that I am looking forward to is the first resurrection. The second important event that I am truly looking forward to would be the marriage of the Lamb, being a part of the Bride of Christ. And the third major event I'm looking forward to would then be being a ruler with Christ as a king and a priest and his bride on this earth for a thousand years. But there is nothing that we have tied the marriage to, is there? And Nelson touched on it a little bit, but he didn't prove it. He just said he had a thought or a feeling about that. Well, that question was asked of me last week, and I've been thinking about it some since. The marriage has been left out of the Holy Day explanation. When Mr. Armstrong went through it, he never, he never tied the marriage of the Lamb and the Bride of Christ together with a Holy Day particularly. Now, it may have been mentioned in passing, and I'm sure that it has, because that marriage event has to come in there somewhere. But where does it fit? How does it fit? What does it mean? Can we see some things from the scriptures that might begin to give us an indication? 
Let's think about Deuteronomy 24, 5 for a moment. Deuteronomy 24, 5. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business, but he shall be free at home one year, and shall cheer up his wife which he has taken. Now, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is a principle that was laid forth in terms of marriage in the Old Testament. It's something that people have not been living up to or abiding by in history or in our society, but it's something that God laid out in terms of marriage. Now, if he thinks that way, or thought that way, would he still think that way? There are three important elements here. He is not to go to war. Now, when Christ comes and takes the beast and the false prophet by the nap of the neck, he will be coming with garments dipped in blood to fight. Now, according to our understanding in past times, it was a, it was a bit muddy, really. Christ would return as lightning from the east to the west, we would rise to meet him in the air, and then we would come down with him to fight. Now that violates this principle. The thought was that he would only come once, and he would come, we would meet him in the air, come down and fight, and he would subdue the earth. That's what we traditionally taught. I question that. And I question that partly because of this very principle. If Christ, being the same yesterday, today, and forever, has his bride meet him in the air, and they come down immediately to fight, how does he get a year off from war when he takes a new wife? How does he get a year off from doing business? I mean, his business will be to set up a millennium here at some point. How would he get a year off from doing business? And how will he be free at home to cheer up his wife? How would you like to have a bridegroom, let's say you're a young lady, and your husband says, marry me, we're going to war. You bet, let's get married, yeah, mm -hmm. that's what I want to do. I want to get married and go to war. I'd give a lot of girls second thoughts, I think. I mean, there's going to be blood and gore and privation and sleeping in muddy foxholes and cold and bitterness and bullets flying over and hand grenades blowing up and bombs falling. Sounds like a wonderful honeymoon. I don't think so. I don't think so. Where do I want to go next here? 
Let's go to Revelation 15. Revelation 15, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Now, this is before Christ comes and takes charge for good. The seven last plagues are poured out. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. The seven last plagues have not yet occurred, and yet the elect are standing on the sea of glass. Where is the sea of glass? Revelation 4. This is a description of God's throne. Verse 2, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne, and it gives a description of, uh, of God. The twenty-four elders there, seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. You tie that to the seven churches back in Revelation 1. Verse 6, though, is where I was headed. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. So, Revelation 15 talks about the seven last plagues being ready to be poured out. And already the saints, the first resurrection, the 144,000, the bride of Christ, if you will, are standing on the sea of glass. They have gone to God's throne. They are standing before the Father and the Son. Interesting, isn't it? We have always believed that the seven seals are here. They've started. Go back to Matthew 24. It's always been taught that we are waiting now for the fifth seal the martyrdom to start. But the famines, the earthquakes, the pestilences, the first four seals, we've already been partially involved in. And then we've always said that those seven seals, the last one is the trumpets. And that those trumpets open up or opened up and all kinds of mayhem comes on the earth. And then when the seventh trump blasts, the resurrection occurs, and that is the beginning of the unleashing of the seven last plagues. It's the way we've always seen it, always taught it. And I believe that sequence to be correct. But if we rise and the seven last plagues are just starting, where do we go? Well, according to Revelation 15 we just read, we go to the sea of glass at the throne of God. Do we stay there for a year? When a man takes a new wife, he cheers her up at home. Where is his home today? It's 
throne of the Father. He does not go to war for a year. And he doesn't do business for a year. He cheers up his wife for a year. Now, let's tie Matthew 24 in with this for a moment. Matthew 24. It has been taught in the church of God that the day of the Lord is the last year of the three and a half years of the final tribulation. You've all heard that, I, I assume, over, over the years. That was taught pretty openly and pretty universally, I think. Now, what do you do with verse 29 of Revelation, or Matthew 24? Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The day of the Lord, it says right here, because it describes the day of the Lord. Go back to Joel, read about the day of the Lord. The exact same language. The day of the Lord begins immediately after the tribulation of those days. That's when these heavenly signs begin to occur. We've used Numbers 14.34, a day representing a year, to indicate that the day of the Lord would last a year. And I think that that is probably true. What is his day? His day is when he begins to intervene in the affairs of men directly, but his day really represents his marriage, doesn't it? Doesn't the day of the Lord include that as well? That's his day. That's the day he's getting married. It's our day. It's the time we're getting married. Could it be that at the end of the three and a half years, which clearly is when the first resurrection occurs, would be the beginning of the day of the Lord, as we see here in Matthew 24, 29, and that day lasts for a year while we are at his home he is cheering us up. We do not go to war against the nations of the world, and we will go to war with him. I'll show you that. Could it be that while the day of the Lord and the darkness and the moon not giving its light and all that horrible time that is happening on earth will be the same time that we are with our bridegroom? And he is cheering us up during that time. Now let's see if we can tie, well wait a minute, I want to go to Isaiah 63 before I leave this thought. Isaiah 63, because I think it adds some confirmation. Isaiah 63, let's begin in verse 4. For the day of vengeance in my, is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. He is going to give, apparently, a day when his vengeance starts and his redeemed will have a year. Who are the redeemed? The 144,000 are those who are first redeemed from the earth. 
to be a part of his kingdom. The New Testament speaks constantly of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And it's spoken of in the context of the first fruits, the Church of God. So, the redeemed have a year. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation to me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in my anger, and make them drink drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. Does it say here that the earth is going to be trampled down, God will begin to truly, definitely intervene, with the day of the Lord, and that's the same time as the year of his redeemed. We would be on honeymoon. We would be with Christ. We would be going through the marriage at that time while the earth is going through the horrors that follow the tribulation. The tribulation is going to be bad enough, and we would pray to escape that. But what comes after that is even worse. The tribulation, as has been taught, is generally thought of in the church as Satan's wrath. And when Satan's wrath is finished, then God begins to pour out his wrath, which makes Satan's wrath appear as nothing. And when those seven last plagues are poured out, it is going to be a horrific time down here. I'm not going to go back and read all that. You've read it before. I don't have time to do it today. But the scripture in Isaiah seems to me to tie it together. The year of his redeemed. What other year is there? Well, the time setting is the return of Christ, the resurrection, the marriage, and us ruling with Christ a thousand years. Well, don't you have to get married sometime in there if you're going to be his bride and rule with him? And when does it occur? And how would it tie together with a day of fasting? How would that fit? Well, let's look at some scriptures. Uh, let's see, maybe I should go here before I get into another section on this to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. No, I don't want to go there yet. I want to save that for later. Let's go to Leviticus 16. This is a little drier back here. Leviticus 16. Now, we are pretty familiar, I think, with this story, and Nelson also mentioned it in the sermonette, of the two goats. Uh, one is killed for a sin offering. The other is sent into the wilderness away from people, won't be around people, banished, in other words. And Mr. Armstrong taught, and I believe he was accurate on this, that the one that is killed represents Christ. And the Azazel, or the one that's sent out, represents Satan. Uh, Christ is the atonement for our sins. He is the one who forgives our sins and takes them away in that sense. Satan does not take away our sins. We need to understand that. 
The only thing he carries on his back is the guilt for our sins. Christ's blood takes our sins away, not Satan. The only thing that is pronounced on his back is the guilt for our sins for having led us into sin from the Garden of Eden on. That's why he is sent away. Now the timing is perfect there because he's began, bound at the beginning of the millennium for a thousand years, as Revelation 20 says. But I want to pick up some things right in this section apart from that <coughs> today. It's, it's, it's introducing that story here in Leviticus 16. Let's go down to verse 4. He shall put on the holy linen coat. Now remember that everything in the Old Testament is only a figure or a symbol of the reality which was to come. Of Christ coming, of the reality of us being the bride of Christ, of the reality of New Testament, true New Testament Christendom. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with a linen girdle, and with a linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Keep that in mind. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. So he was to be bodily clean, and then put on these linen garments, which are dubbed here holy garments. Verse 6, And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. Now this atonement is for whom? At that time, it was for Aaron and his house and all of Israel, for that matter, because they all were to keep the Day of Atonement. Now flash forward to New Testament, and what would the symbolism represent? Spiritual Israel, the church. We have to be atoned for. And then he takes the two goats that we just described and kills one. One is the goat of the sin offering, as it says in verse 15. Verse 16, though, I want to pick up. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. So this atonement, and we're speaking here of the day of atonement, was to be an atonement, a cleansing of our sins. Verse 19, he shall sprinkle the blood upon it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And Aaron, verse 21, and Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a man fit to do it into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. He's going to a place where there is no one. Christ will be with his bride. This cannot picture Christ. Now again, the sin offering had to be killed. Because what is the penalty of sin? Death. 
This goat is not killed, therefore he cannot pay the penalty of sin. He can only have the guilt for sin pronounced upon him. There is a vast difference. That is not really what I want to point out, though. Let's go to verse 23. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall put off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. He was coming back out into a sinful people. He could not continue to wear the holy garments. Being with sinful people would defile those holy garments. And he, returning to his own life in which sin remained, would defile those holy garments. He could only wear the holy garments at a particular time when he was absolutely clean. Okay? After Passover, are we, from that moment forward, when we take the bread and the wine, clean forevermore? No. It's only symbolic of Jesus Christ dying for our sins, but then the days of unleavened bread come along and show us that we have to continue putting sin out. So it is a continuing forgiveness of sins. It is a continuing sacrifice at Passover. And we will continue to live as human beings after the symbolism of Passover is finished. I keep the Passover every year, and I need it every year to remind me of sin, and I have to do the Days of Unleavened Bread every year to continue putting sin out of my life because I'm still a sinning human being. In other words, I am not qualified to wear the holy garments continually. Forevermore, am I? Now here's a clue. That is a clue to understanding the difference of Christ's sacrifice at Passover and what it means at the Day of Atonement to have this goat killed as that sin offering. Verse 24, And he shall wash his flesh, I'll explain that more later, And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place, and put on his garments, and come forth, and offer his burnt offering, and the burnt offering of the people, and make an atonement for himself and for the people. Now, what happens to what's left of these offerings that are made on the Day of Atonement? Verse 27. The bullet for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, his blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall one carry forth without the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins and their flesh and their dung. Nothing is to remain, to remind of a sin offering. Nothing is to remain. It's all to be gone. And he that burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp. 
There's an awful lot about cleansing here and clean garments and clean bodies, isn't there? You don't see this much. I mean, there's a whole chapter devoted to it here. You don't see this much about the Passover or the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Trumpets or the Feast of Tabernacles, do you? You find it here about atonement. Interesting. Verse 29, And this shall be a statute forever to you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourns among you. Now, on the other holy days, it talks about no work shall be done except the, the uh, making of food. Here it says no work at all. That tells you right there, if you can't make food, you're not supposed to be eating or drinking. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the eternal. It shall be a Sabbath of rest to you, and you shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. And the priest whom he shall anoint, and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead, shall make the atonement, and shall put on the linen clothes, and he explains, even the holy garments. And he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation and for the altar, and he shall make an atonement for the priests and for all the people of the congregation. Everything has to be cleansed. And this shall be an everlasting statute to you to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins. Once a year, and he did as the Lord commanded Moses. Over and over again, it's holy garments, cleaning your body, cleansing. That has a great deal to do with the feast or the day that we are now keeping. Now how would this be tied to the marriage? Because I submit to you that the Day of Atonement does represent and is symbolic of the marriage of the Lamb. Let's go to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. We'll begin to see some of what is necessary if we are to be a part of that bride and of that marriage. And I wanted to give Leviticus 16 as a background before doing so. Matthew 22. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king which made a marriage for his son. The kingdom of God is like a marriage. Does this remind you of Genesis 2, where he says, A man and a woman become one flesh, and then Paul continues that analogy in Ephesians 5, or makes an analogy out of that in Ephesians 5, where he describes a physical marriage between a man and a woman and says, I'm showing you a mystery, but I speak of Christ and the church. Okay? Marriage represents Christ and the church. That's clear. So here, this is laid out. A certain king made a marriage for his son, and the symbolism is of the kingdom of God. And sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, 
and they would not come. There are a lot of people today who have been invited to the wedding who are doing everything it seems in their power to avoid being there by the way they are thinking and living. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. We have things on this earth that just sort of we seem to be tied to. We can't break away from. God has a purpose in mind for us, but we have trouble, whether it be our business or our farm, family, as indicated in other places, being willing to give up family, father, mother, brother, sister, and so on. What is it that we have trouble giving up? And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. Is there tribulation, martyrdom, and trial about to come upon the church? But when the king heard thereof, he was wrathful. Now I explained, I think, clearly in one sermon and how exclusive is the church in that series, that in this parable, the guests represent what will ultimately become the bride. Because some of these people are cast out and are not allowed to be there. And if they're already considered the bride, how can you cast them out? You can't do that. The bride is comprised of those who are invited. Many are called, few are chosen. So in one sense today, even though we may be potentially part of the bride, we're still in the category of a guest until we are included in the bride. So for the purposes of this parable, those who will ultimately become the bride are guests, and the use of guests is there so that some can be cast out. And I, I spent a whole sermon on that. You can go back to that. I don't have time today to show that. But that's, the, that's it in a nutshell. But when the king heard, verse 7 thereof, he was wrathful, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. What is Christ going to do to all of those who do not come through? In tribulation and that which follows. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Are many of us today in the churches of God showing ourselves not to be worthy? We're going back into the world. We're not willing to come out of the world. We're still thinking and acting and doing the way we wish to do. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid to the marriage. He does talk in another place about some being bid at the eleventh hour. Some might be called right at the last moment. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. Well, how can you be bad and good and still be part of the bride? Well, there are people who have lived pretty decent lives. There are also those who have not done so well. And we might put them down. We would think perhaps that murder shouldn't be a part of the wedding. Well, Paul was a murderer. He killed not only people out in the world, he killed Christians and had to repent of it. There were a lot of people who were a little edgy about Paul. There's indication of that in the New Testament. They were a little bit afraid of him. Well, you know, here's a man who was killing us, and now he's one of us. 
Give me a break, they said. Is this guy a Jesuit? <laughs> you know, is this somebody, some guy crept in unawares? He's been killing us, now he says he's of us? There's a lot of people kind of backed off from Paul for a while. I don't know whether they want to accept this murderer in the church or not. Adulterers are another category a lot of people get really squeamish about. Well, David's going to be there, and he was a murderer and an adulterer. The point is, the man repented, see. He didn't remain that, he repented of it. And there are a lot of people in God's church who are in any one category of sin you want to bring up. But God says, bring both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with gifts. God called so-called good people into the church, and he called a lot of bad people into the church. He called the weak and the base. He has invited us. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. Now what have we been reading back in Leviticus 16? About having to have clean, white, not white it didn't say, clean, holy garments. We'll run into that again here in a moment. He had to have on a wedding garment. It doesn't matter whether you were bad or whether you were good in the past. When you come to that wedding supper, you had better be dressed right. That's the point here. And he said to him, Friend, how came you in here not having a wedding garment? And there wasn't a thing the man could say. Oops, I don't have on a wedding garment. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now that shows you that that has to do with our present calling. Many have been called. Presently, a few are being chosen. And many are turning their back on it and going right back into Protestantism, back into the world, or continuing to sleep on and Laodiceanism. We cannot afford to do that. We must be putting on a wedding garment. Let's see that backed up in Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. Awake, or wake up, wake up. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for henceforth there shall no more come into you this uncircumcised and the unclean. We have to put on our beautiful garments because a time is coming when there will no unclean be allowed ever again among us. All right, let's go now to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. We had an aborted mission to go there earlier. Uh, let's go down to verse 7. Revelation 19, 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted... Something was given, granted to her, allowed her, 
handed to her, that she should be arrayed in fine linen. Didn't we read a lot about fine linen in Leviticus 16 about the Day of Atonement? Fine linen, clean and white, or bright. For the fine linen is, if you want to know what the symbolism of Leviticus 16 is, and other places where clean garments are mentioned in the Bible, here is a defining statement. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Bring forward that which was only symbol from the Old Testament regarding the Day of Atonement, and it is the righteousness of saints. What is the context that we are reading here? The marriage of the Lamb. The fine linen of Leviticus 16 pictures the marriage of the Lamb and his bride will be attired in fine, bright linen. It all ties together. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he says to me, These are the true sayings of God. I think this day pictures the marriage of the Lamb to a wife who has been made ready and has clean, bright clothes on. Once Christ comes, the resurrection occurs, where are we going to be? 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. Beginning in verse 6. Ever he is, from that moment on, we will be with him. We will never, ever again leave his side. Wherever he goes, we will go. We will be bride and groom, or groom and bride, to put it better. We will always be with him wherever he goes. Let's go on down in Revelation 19. It talks about the marriage of the Lamb in verses 7, 8, and 9. In verse 10, And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said to me, See you do it not. I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. Now, the marriage has already been prepared, and these have been called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then the scene changes, and he's here in, to, in righteousness, judge and make war. Now, where has he been? His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. 
And he was clothed with a vesture, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, bright and clean. The bride is the one that has those clothes. When he comes to make war, we will be with him. Because as soon as we are resurrected or changed at the last trump, we will rise, meet him in the air, we will go to the sea of glass, I think we will spend a year there in which he will not make war, he will cheer up his bride, we will have a honeymoon of one year, just like Deuteronomy 24.5 says is the correct procedure, and then he will come down to make war and we will be with him wearing fine linen clothes. Those are the righteousness of the saints. That is the clothing we must wear before we can be with him, before we can be married to him, as Matthew 22 shows. If we don't have on wedding garments, fine, clean, and bright, we can't be at the marriage. If we do, we will marry him. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. You see, we pictured that we would rise and meet him in the clouds, and then we would immediately come right back down. But that does violence to these other scriptures, doesn't it? There's got to be a year, if he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he is, in which that principle would be followed. If it's a principle of God that he put upon Israel, then it's a principle that he will live by. And the day of the Lord, as we saw in Matthew 24, verse 29, begins at the conclusion of the three and a half years of the greatest tribulation that has ever been on earth. And it's at that time, then, if you go on down, that he shows that he will take the beast and the false prophet and cast them into a lake burning with fire. So it appears to me the day of the Lord will be going on down here on the earth while the wedding supper is going on and the honeymoon, the year, while we're on the sea of glass at the throne of God. Heaven is not the reward of the saved. It is only where we go for a honeymoon. You ask a girl, where do you want to go for a honeymoon? Well, let's see, I'd like to go to Cancun, or I'd like to go to Tahiti or somewhere. Well, this bride is going to want to go where she has always desired to be. Her husband's home, the throne of God. And it does say there that we will stand on the sea of glass. The sea of glass is at his throne. There's no getting around that. But we do come back down, and he subdues the earth, and we rule it with a rod of iron, just as he rules it with a rod of iron. It says he will break the nations like a potter's vessel. But I think we read a scripture only a week or two ago which says he will also give us that same power to rule, a rod of, to rule with a rod of iron. So as groom and bride, we rule together, he taking preeminence always, of course. Now, 
Why fast? If this picture's the wedding, why be fasting? A wedding is a time of feasting, is it not? A wedding is a time, well, Christ performed his first miracle at Cana of Galilee, turning water into wine. And it talks about the wedding feast there in Matthew 22. So why are we fasting if this indeed does picture the marriage of the Lamb? Let's explore that a little bit. Let's go to Matthew 9, first of all. Matthew 9. And here I want verse 14. Matthew 9, 14. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples fast not? And Jesus said to them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. We are awaiting the return of Christ. We're awaiting the resurrection. He is simply not here. This is a time for fasting because we are separated from our groom. We are separated from our husband-to-be. Now, probably all of you who are married were at one time engaged to be married, which is what we are today. Where did you want to be when you were engaged? Do you remember? With your betrothed. You wanted to spend every moment, every second, every day, every hour, eternity with them, didn't you? Of course you did. It's all you can think about. It's all we ought to be thinking about in a larger sense. And you mourned when you were apart, didn't you? And you called and you wrote letters and you pined and your heart hurt and your stomach was upset when you weren't together. When we're with him, we're going to feast. And we will drink the fruit of the vine with him then. And he said, I'm going to miss you. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I do it with you in my kingdom, didn't he? He wasn't going to go up there and party on because he misses his bride. And we are in pain and misery if we're right-minded because he's not here. So he said, when the bridegroom is with you, you don't fast. When he's away, you do fast. I think that answers, in a nutshell, why we're fasting today. This is picturing a time when we are to become at one with him. What does at one meant mean? It means to become one, doesn't it? We've always believed that. But would we tie it to the marriage? I don't remember that being done in the past. Now, maybe someone did, and I didn't hear it, but it was never a major doctrine of the church that you tied the marriage of the Lamb to the Day of Atonement. What does fasting consist of? Let's go to Isaiah 58. 
wasn't going to turn there this year because I think I did last year and the year before, perhaps. But there's a lot in here. If we fast for things, if we fast for our desires, if we fast to get an answer to whatever we might want at the moment, the first part of this chapter says, God does not like. And then he gives the real reasons for fasting. He says in verse 6, is, this not, is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Now, what is the righteousness of saints? Fine, white, bright linen. Clothes represent our conduct in Bible prophecy. Clean white garments is what we're supposed to have on, not those that are muddied and dirty from sin. So, a fast is to loosen the bands of wickedness. Does Christ want to marry a wicked bride? He had one, remember? Ezekiel 16. He had a wicked bride. He divorced her. He could not stand to live with wickedness. Therefore, he tells us that we must put on the clothes of righteousness and not be unclean anymore. And is not that the focus of Leviticus 16? Getting rid of any uncleanness, washing, putting on clean clothes, and after you even burn anything that's left of the offering, you get rid of it entirely. Do we begin to see the difference between the Passover when Christ began to be offered for us and we were continuing in sin because the time setting is totally different with the Day of Atonement than it is at Passover? At Passover, we are still in the physical realm. We are still sinning from day to day, moment to moment. We still have to have unleavened bread to continue putting sin out of our lives. But when you come to the fall holy days and to the Day of Atonement in particular, you're picturing a time in which we have passed from sinful mortality to incorruptible immortality on the Feast of Trumpets. No longer will we ever sin. And all sin that we have ever committed the guilt of will be placed upon Satan and he will be bound a thousand years, taken away, and a goat is killed on atonement, or was, representing Christ who was killed for us, who will be our sacrifice for sin once and for all. Never again will we ever sin. But we have a reminder here on the Day of Atonement that we have to become just like He is. And at that point in time, having just been changed from mortal to immortal at the Day of Trumpets, we will be totally at one with Him. His sacrifice will have worked. Never again will we ever sin by what this day pictures. Never again will he have a wicked harlot bride. 
We will always be faithful. We will always be true. We will always be just what he wanted. We will be the woman of his dreams, if you will. A woman who will never rebel. A woman who will never go against her husband. A woman who will never do him harm or hurt or embarrassment or shame in any way. Who will be solicitous of his needs and his wants and his desires. Who will take care of him in every way. Provide him companionship from then on so that he will never be hurting or lonely or separated from his bride again. We will ever be with him. Let's look at fasting from that standpoint. We've mentioned that fasting is to produce humility. What does a wife do when she marries her husband? In the ceremonies that we used to have, at least, she was to honor and love and obey. You have to become humble to do that. This is a day which pictures humility. She has been an individual on her own for whatever years she's lived, 18, 19, 20, 25 years before her marriage. She has been a sovereign citizen, if you will. Now she is giving her life as a helpmeet to her husband, to a man. That takes a certain humility. It takes a divesting of your autonomy and your sovereignty as a single individual to meld that life with someone else's life. That's what it means. So that you're no longer two, but one flesh. That requires humility on the part of a bride. That has been taken out of many marriage ceremonies today because people simply don't want to do that. But fasting is to produce humility. <clears throat> it is to produce yieldedness, where the bride yields to her husband's life and will and desires. Now the husband has his part, and Christ will be the most loving bridegroom there ever was. But I'm not talking about that today. I'm talking about us on the Day of Atonement and what we need to be doing. It is also a recognition of need. When we fast physically, we suddenly come up with a recognition of need, don't we? I need a drink of water. I need a cup of coffee. Some of your heads are beginning to pound already today. I need whatever it is that I normally survive on. I need something else. I need food. I want food. If I don't have food and water, I think I'm going to die. As soon as the sun goes down, I'm going to go get me some food and water, we say. Because we see a need. Now when we consider marrying Jesus Christ, we comprehend from Scripture His power his love, his concern 
his feelings for us. Read the Song of Songs sometime and see how it goes back and forth and the need that they have for one another. And he has that same need that we have. And at this time, he is somewhat lonely. He wants us as his breath. He desires us. And we have to recognize a need. The physical part of fasting is only there to bring to a reality the spiritual needs that we have. It's only a type of that. We're not fasting here just so we can be hungry and God sits up there and says, Suffer, you jerks, suffer. Not his attitude. Christ wants a yielded, loving, kind, humble bride. So on the day that pictures that marriage, we fast because we're not with him and because we need to be like him to become at one and one flesh with him. Now it talks here in Isaiah 58, if you go on down, uh, it talks about getting rid of the bands of wickedness first and then dealing our bread to the hungry and they that bring the poor that are cast out to your house and you see the naked that you cover him, that you hide not yourself from your own flesh. What is our job as Christ's bride in the millennium? It is to give food and succor and need and everything that a human being could ever want or desire to the world that is left. Doesn't that fit Proverbs 31? About the woman who goes out and takes care of her husband and takes care of others, takes care of her own household and others. Don't have time to go through all that today, but it fits. And if you fast, verse 9, then you shall call and the Lord will answer. Once we're married to him and we ask him something, will he answer? Just like that. We'll be one. We'll be together. Now, it applies here as well, but it will apply much, much more then. Let's go down to verse 12. And they that shall be of you shall fill the old waste places. Now, we're building the church back, first of all, but it also has to do with physical Israel in the millennium, the second fulfillment of this. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. Christ's first bride created a tremendous breach, which ended up in divorce. Now, that's a breach for you. This bride is to repair that breach to make him complete and one again. We have a tremendous calling to fulfill Jesus Christ. Now it's easy to look upon it as ourselves wanting to be fulfilled, but both parties of a marriage have to be fulfilled or you don't have a marriage, correct? The breach will be completely repaired at the time Christ marries his bride. What in the holy day seasons pictures that more than the day of at one minute? See? It's no longer a continuing sacrifice like Passover, but a final sacrifice and will never be needed again since we will become one at that point. It is a final 
symbolism of sin being offered because we will never die. Our sins will be removed as far as the east is from the west, and that's the end of that. We fast today because we're not with our bridegroom. We won't need to fast then. That will be done. We'll have the wedding feast. I think that the symbolism fits beautifully, and it ties up that one event we all look forward to that wasn't anywhere in the Holy Day picture. The marriage of the Lamb has to fit here. can't fit anywhere else. In the millennium, we're already married and ruling with him. Our children are here on the earth. Feast of trumpets, we're just rising up out of the ground and all the sticks and dirt and mud and stuff are falling off our hair as we're changed. It is that in-between at the Day of Atonement that the marriage has to take place and then we can come back with him and rule on this earth. So I don't think I'm on thin ice here in presenting this to you. I think that it is fairly clear, at least in my mind, if you see anything in there that uh, doesn't seem to fit, I'd like to see it, because I can find an awful lot more that does fit it. A lot of other scriptures that I didn't get to, that some of them came to mind as I stood here and talked about this. So, yes, as Nelson alluded to uh, in the sermonette, this is an exciting day. It pictures us getting ourselves yielded and ready to get married. And when we go before the Father with Jesus Christ on the sea of glass and take those vows, we need to be yielded and humble and meek, and we had better be dressed in fine, white, bright linen clothes of righteousness. That's what this day is really all about. That's why Leviticus 16 goes through all of that, about he had to be washing his body, he had to be clean, he had to wear these holy garments. If we have our holy garments on, as pictured by the Day of Atonement, we'll be ready to be married.